Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I've been preaching a series this month entitled The Best Question Ever, and we've been applying it to a couple of different situations, and today we're going to apply it to a topic that's already generated a lot of discussion this week. I've had comments and emails and little snide remarks all week long about the issue, and uh, if you've seen your sermon, uh, the bulletin, the sermon title in your bulletin this morning, and you already know we're going to dive into the issue of Christians and alcohol. And I doubt there's a person here who probably doesn't come to this discussion with some kind of a opinion, uh, maybe a bias in one direction or another. This is one of those hot topics within the church. A lot of discussion, a lot of time been spent on this topic, on this issue. And I want to clarify and just state for the record up front that it's also a topic that saved godly people can disagree on uh, still and still be able to live in unity and harmony and love one another. So understand that. But another kind of warning in this is oftentimes as you come to this topic and you share a view and, and you, you uh, teach what Scripture has to say about it, people will begin to lob the accusation toward a, a, a person, a particularly a pastor. A lot of time we, we pastors catch this where they'll say it about a church or a denomination. They'll say, well, they're just legalistic, you know, in their view of something. Well, if you would lobby and, and call me legalistic, then I just say one thing to you. Hi, my name is Curtis. Have we met because legalism and, and, and the name Curtis Barnes don't really go together? Well, I'm not the antithesis of legalism. I, I do love the statement that sacred cows make great burgers, all right? So, uh, you know, that, that's uh, just totally not a fair representation of, of who I am uh, on this topic or anything in general. But understand, just because somebody may have a different biblical conviction than you that they, they refuse to compromise doesn't make them legalistic. Now, I may land in a place different from where you are on this topic, but while my thoughts are biblical, they're not absolute or binding. There is some uh, diversity and some varying opinions and applications of this topic and of the things that we'll share today. But just make sure, as I said last week, that where you land and where you arrive is based on the authority of Scripture. We must start with God's Word and work our way back from there. And so it must be founded in Scripture. And I would just ask you to be, uh, be prayerful about what I have to say today. Uh, I asked that last week, so I want to reiterate it. And I would just encourage you, too, to spend some time being very self-aware. I learned this years ago and over years of ministry, I would preach on topics and share some principles and ideas, and I had people who didn't like those things. And boy, I've had a few people light into me over some thoughts and ideas and things that I shared uh, on, on principles and truths that I taught. And they would light into me to the point where I'm thinking, did I miss it? What, 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 did, I say, what did I say that was wrong? I, I, I was just, I kind of questioned myself in that, only to find out later that in a couple of those instances, the person's response had been so venomous and so angry because they were dealing with that sin in their life. They were hiding those things, and that response was for them to cover their, their own guilt and sense of conviction that they were feeling and experiencing. And I heard someone say one time, they said, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. 
And I was like, oh, I like that. I like that. So just thinking yourself, uh, you, your response to things, is that something that's coming within you that was said that's, that's wrong or, or incorrect? Or is it maybe a sense of conviction from God who's saying, you need to pay attention. You need to listen uh, to these things. So if the Holy Spirit leads you to implement changes, then you follow those leadings and promptings. And if he doesn't, then that's between you and the Lord. And you following the Holy Spirit's promptings and leadings, just do so within biblical parameters. Which brings me to the first point and our first point of understanding today is that if the Bible speaks clearly to an issue, you and I are to obey that teaching. If the Bible speaks clearly to an issue, we are to obey that teaching. For example, the Bible very clearly, no two ways about it, the Bible says, do not commit adultery. That is a moral absolute It applies to all people at all times in all situations, especially God's children, those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ and live under the authority of God's word. So it doesn't matter what need your husband or wife is or isn't meeting in your life. Do not commit adultery. And it doesn't matter how you or how this man or woman makes you feel or how you feel about this man or about this woman. Don't trust your feelings and do not commit adultery, period. The Bible says it speaks clearly to it, so we are to obey that teaching. And there is a clear, undeniable, irrefutable, moral absolute related to this topic of alcohol. The Bible says, without any room for ambiguity, don't be drunk. The Bible says it. Do not be drunk. Ephesians 5.18 says, and do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. Debauchery means immoral behavior. It means sin or depravity. And if some wise guy just leaned over and says, well, it doesn't say anything about beer or strong liquor, give him a shot in the ribs for me, all right? When the Bible says do not get drunk on wine, it means any alcoholic beverage that puts you into a drunken state. The Bible absolutely, unequivocally, without question, denounces drunkenness and everything associated with it every time it speaks to it. And I listed several verses in your bulletin insert this morning that speak to this. But you know what? Those are not all of the verses. Those are just a few of the verses that speak to this topic all all throughout Scripture. And they all say the same thing. Don't be drunk. Ever. It is a moral absolute from Scripture. One I inadvertently left off, and I I couldn't believe I did this. I woke up uh, last night in the middle of the night and went... I don't think I put that scripture reference in there. Don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was brain dead typing that in. But in Proverbs chapter 23, write this one and add this to your list. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 warns us, as only the Bible can do in the wisdom of King Solomon, about the dangers of drunkenness that comes from drinking alcohol in excess. It says this in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes? Well, who does have all these things? I mean, that that's not like a fun list. Woe, sorrow, strife, complaining, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. Who has all that? He, he writes and says, those who tarry long over wine. 
Those who go to try mixed wine, and then this warning, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things. Does the Bible know about human beings? Does it know what we're going to experience and what we're going to see? You ever hear people talk about the things they see when they've been under the influence of alcohol? It, it, it can be quite humorous sometimes. Your eyes will see strange things, the Bible says, and your heart utter perverse things. Verse 34, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. Well, what's that description of? That description is of seasickness. Any of you ever been seasick, been on a boat and get that seasickness? This says alcohol will cause you to have unpleasant feelings of sickness when you give yourself to this excess, to the state of drunkenness. So it's describing uh, and giving warnings about what will happen when we give ourselves to the state of drunkenness, which the Bible says don't do. Verse 35, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Some strong warnings from the book of Proverbs. In Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament, Paul uh, is writing and he identifies some of the works of the flesh in, Roman, in Galatians 5.21. Now in 5.22, he tells us how we should live by the Spirit. But in verse 21, he tells us the works of the flesh. These are the things that our sin nature will lead us into. And Paul says, don't do these things. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Say, yeah, that's not a list of things that I you know, want to see. That's not what I want to associate with and have people say about me that I do these things. But right in the middle of this list here, Paul adds drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I mean, this is our list of things that Christians should avoid and steer clear of, and drunkenness is right there on the list. Drunkenness is a sin, and Christians shouldn't give themselves and put themselves in that condition any more than they should steal or murder or commit adultery. It is a moral absolute clearly stated in the Bible. Now, that being said, I have to make an, a clarifying statement. The Bible doesn't expressly forbid the drinking of any alcohol at all. Drunkenness is forbidden, but having an alcoholic beverage period isn't forbidden in the pages of Scripture. So at minimum, then, the Bible teaches that alcohol should be consumed in moderation and that we should never allow ourselves to get to the point of drunkenness. But the question we've been asking isn't, is it wrong? Because according to the Bible, uh, drinking some alcohol isn't wrong. Our question has been, what's the wise thing to do? And I want to show you, based on what I believe to be the full authority of God's Word, why I believe that not consuming any alcohol at all is the wisest thing that we could do as followers of Jesus Christ, living under the authority of God's Word. And again, you don't have to agree with me on this, but listen and think and pray through it. 
And if you come down in a different place, and I'm not going to think any less of you, just make sure and understand that you can uh, be where you are and practice what you practice, do what you do based on the authority of God's word. And, and I would ask this, and I mean this seriously and, and from a gentle and pure heart, so, so please don't take this any way other than that. If I am missing something in this discussion and in this thinking as to why not drinking alcohol at all is the wisest thing to do. And, and if there's a line of thought or reasoning that you would say that drinking alcohol in moderation is the wisest thing to do, I would really like to know that. Again, not to be antagonistic in any way. I just really, I don't see the wisdom in that based on what we see outlined in Scripture. And if I'm missing something, I really would like to see and know and understand so that I can be, be fair in my understanding of what the Bible teaches. So I, I just want to know if there's a blind spot of something that I'm missing, and I would love to hear counterpoints in those thoughts. But as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to see what the Scripture teaches and why I would say I think the wise thing to do is totally avoid alcohol, as I was working this week, I dusted off some of my Greek uh, study tools that I hadn't used in quite some time, and I found a obscure Greek grammar rule. And the Greek grammar rules let you kind of put different words in or endings, and it kind of changes the context and, and the feel of, of some words and passages of Scripture. And as I found this rule and applied it to a couple of places, here in 1 Corinthians 8, I was blown away at how relevant and how spot on this passage of Scripture is for in, in 2011 as we think about this issue that we're talking about today. Listen as I read through this, and I'm not going to tell you where I made the translation difference. I just want you to see if you can pick up and understand where I may have substituted some words in uh, based on this interpretation rule. But verse 8, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. So the same could be applied to drinking and, and to being alcohol here, to, to consuming alcohol in moderation here. Paul says, you're not more spiritual or less spiritual if you give yourself to eating food or to drinking alcohol because there's the freedom to do that. But he says in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge drinking a Bud Light in a restaurant, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to drink Bud Light also? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if drinking Bud Light makes my brother stumble, I will never drink Bud Light, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, it was subtle, but did you pick up the interpretation rules in that? But I mean, honestly, I, I mean that as a joke, but that is how you take that principle and you apply it today. I mean, does, is that not dead on in the middle of the conversation we're having here? Is that not the topic for us to look at and the issue that we most have to grapple with as Christians as we ask ourselves, should I exercise my freedom in Christ to consume in moderation an alcoholic beverage? I think when you apply this principle to this topic, the logical outcome and conclusion is that due to the potential of putting a stumbling block in the path of another person, be they a believer or unbeliever, the wise thing to do is to avoid alcohol consumption completely so as not to be that stumbling block for someone else. Because what you stand to lose compared to what you stand to gain 
if you even could gain anything at all, far outweighs the risk in consuming alcohol. Well, let me point out a few things uh, to you this morning, and then I want to recommend on our website, I I put some articles up there. There's just not enough time for me to walk through the extensive amount of information dealing with uh, word studies and usage in the Bible and all those things. So I put some articles on the website for you. If you do not have internet access, there are a few copies in the foyer. I didn't make many because I really uh, want you to go to the website because there there are a lot. It's probably 25 pages worth of information, but four articles that I want to commend to you to read. And if we run out today, then we can get some, some of those for you this week. But I want to begin by quoting Dr. Walter Huck, uh, who says this, Social or moderate drinking is a topic for Christians, not unbelievers. Social or moderate drinking is a topic for Christians, not unbelievers. And the reason he says that and the reason I agree with that is because the primary need of unbelievers is a relationship with Jesus Christ not rightly understanding or practicing biblical morals, any kind of biblical morals. Now, that may come as a newsflash to some believers, but here's the thing. A person may live his or her entire life and never touch a drop drop of alcohol and be a good moral person based on what we think a good Christian should do and still split hell wide open. Because it's not about our morals and what we think and how we live our life. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The greatest need of unbelievers isn't for us to lecture and nag them about their drinking. It's for us to show them love. It's for us to build a relationship and share the gospel so they can give their lives to Jesus Christ. That's the greatest need for unbelievers. And that's how we need to spend our time with them is engaging and sharing the gospel with them so that once Christ lives and indwells in their heart, then he will begin that process of helping them know what to do and how to live their lives in obedience to his word. But that's the greatest need of unbelievers, and we need to understand that as we begin. But a second thing we need to understand as we bring this into the realm of focusing for believers is that our Christian maturity should be marked by love for others. Our Christian maturity should be marked, identified by our love for others. Jesus said in John chapter 13, as I have loved you, so you must what? Love one another. By this, Jesus says, by your love for one another, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The more we love Jesus, the more we'll love other people particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our church mission statement is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul teaches that the more mature, stronger believers should take the high road and give up anything that may cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble in their walk with Christ. And Paul illustrates in his life and he demonstrates that his love for others dictated. Paul said it was a mandate for him to lay down his rights to his own life for the sake of others. That those who were less mature believers could maybe mature from Paul laying down his rights and laying aside his rights so that they could grow in Christ. Or so that an unbeliever could come to Christ. Paul said, I lay down my, my rights, I will lay down my whole life that people can grow in Christ or people would come to Christ. But Paul said, I lay it down, I give it up for the sake 
of others. And in chapter 8, verse 1, he said, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This is the knowledge of right and wrong that there's nothing uh, wrong with having this one drink of alcohol. Or here he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. But he says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he admonishes them to, to not be puffed up in their knowledge that I can do this, so I'm going to, but to show love by not putting a stumbling block in front of others. Number three, think of those who follow you. Think of those who follow you. And there are people, all of us have people in our lives who look to us, who follow our example, our teachings, who do what we do, particularly uh, our children and our grandchildren. And you may have been a social drinker your entire life and never once slipped over or stepped over that line into drunkenness. And I applaud your self-control and your self-discipline in that. But what if someone sees and then follows your example and they don't have that self-control? They don't have that self-discipline and the step for them in their life leads into alcoholism or possibly even death as a result of the things that alcohol brings with it. Your Christian liberty will have led them into that path of sin and destruction. And parents, we've got to take the blinders off Stop lying to ourselves and face the truth that it is our responsibility for our children in this area. And grandparents, it may be up to you to inform your children that it's their responsibility for the sake of their grandchildren. This last week, Pastor Joe and Pastor Michael and myself met with our students and our parents together to talk about this issue, also related to, to sexuality with teenagers and, and the dangers of all that. And Pastor Joe shared something that I, I didn't know. He said Josh McDowell uh, recently stated that in the, the surveys and the research he's, he's found that 50% of teenagers who drink beer, these are middle school, yes, and I said middle school, middle school and high school uh, youth and students who are drinking beer, which is illegal underage drinking, by the way, just for the record, 50% of them, do you know where their first drink came from? Inside their own home because their mother and father made it readily available because of their habits and the choices that they made. Now, I'm not saying that you are guaranteed that your children or grandchildren will abstain if you abstain from alcohol, but I cannot fathom the grief and the anguish I would go through if my children were to follow my example and my habit into this area and something tragic happens in their life. Either their life is ended prematurely or I see this, this begin to be a problem for them in their marriage and in their life as they live it out as an adult. It, it, it would be such an incredible weight in my heart and my spirit to know that I introduced them to these things. And again, I don't have time to go through this morning. I mean, you, you wouldn't take, you know, three seconds on the Internet to Google and find out stats on teenage drinking and driving and the fatalities that happen as a result of teenage drinking and driving to see how alcohol is so tied to criminal activity and the life of crime that, that gets introduced from students who begin drinking alcohol and the drug abuse that starts with alcohol usage. There's so much that comes because of alcohol. It is the center of of so many pitfalls and danger that millions and millions of teenagers are falling into in these teen years that haunt them for the rest 
of their lives. We must be diligent. We must think about our example. And I unequivocally stand with, with Dr. Adrian Rogers and, and James Merritt on the issue of, st- of total abstinence because of the potential danger in leading other people astray. Adrian Rogers said this, moderation is not the cure for the liquor problem. Moderation is the cause of the liquor problem. Becoming an alcoholic does not begin with the last drink. It always begins with the first. Just leave it alone, Dr. Rogers says. Dr. Adrian Rogers, not the other Dr. Rogers. Uh, Mr. Rogers, that is. Uh, James Merritt. James Merritt adds this. It is impossible to be bitten by a snake that you never play with. It's impossible to be bitten by a snake you never play with. Alcoholism can't strike unless it's given the opportunity. And that potential becomes real with someone's first drink. Number four, recognize that alcohol is a gateway drug. It commonly leads to other more serious uh, drugs and and problems with that. School educators and law enforcement officials are saying that prescription drug abuse and even over-the-counter drug abuse is as prevalent, if not more so, than alcohol. Oftentimes, because those things are easier uh, for teenagers and children to obtain. They just go to their mom and dad or their grandparents' medicine cabinet, uh, grab a few pills there to give out and to make some money off of or to take for themselves, it is a growing uh, issue in our school systems and in our culture as a whole. And I've talked about this slippery slope, that, that if we know there's a slippery slope and we know that something is dangerous, the best way to not get hurt on that slippery slope or that dangerous area is to stay away from it, not get closer to it and look and say, yeah, that's really dangerous. It's to stay away from it. And so many times alcohol is that first step onto so many different slippery slopes. It's not just alcohol and drug abuse. It impacts our, uh, the, the sexuality that, that we experience. There's so many things that comes. Uh, one of the guys in, in the articles I had, it was a sermon. He said, alcohol numbs the morals. Alcohol numbs the morals. You ever have people that, you know, they come in and go, man, this weekend was not a good week. I cannot believe what I did. They would have never done that on Friday when they left the office. They know better and they'd say, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. But over the weekend, too much to drink, wrong situation, wrong peer influence, and bam, decisions they would not have made as a result of giving themselves to too much alcohol consumption. Well, I know people are thinking, and you're going to hear them say, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Jesus, he, he did right there in the Bible. I know, I know it says it. Well, I would tell you, read the Paige Patterson article that I provided for a great discussion about words for wine in the Bible. But in short, realize that when the Bible uses the word wine, it describes things upon a long spectrum. For one, it describes freshly squeezed grape juice. Just right out of the grapes. I thought about bringing in a cluster today, just squeezing right here and going, here's some wine, according to the word, how the Bible used it sometimes. It would be messy in my pants, so I didn't want to do that today. But it goes from freshly squeezed grapes to the other end of the spectrum with heavy, fermented, very strong drink. That same word is used to describe that spectrum. So as Jesus turned water into wine, uh, we don't know which of the kind that was there. We do know that the, the head of the banquet said, this is some really good stuff. You know, so maybe it maybe was more of the freshly squeezed, very natural than the fermented, which gets bitter and loses its taste over time. You know, people, I like the, 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 the taste of it. Really? You know, over time you develop that taste. So however, whatever the situation, it's an argument from silence that's there. There's no clear 
teaching that Jesus ever drank alcohol, and if he did, we can rest assured that he was never drunk because the Bible says that Jesus was without sin. And so it's an argument from silence either way. And then I love this one. Well, didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach? He did. He was basically prescribing medicine for him. He had some kind of a stomach condition, and that day and that time, uh, with the medical technology they had, wine was a prescription for dealing with this uh, stomach ailment. And realized they didn't have a whole lot of other options. If Paul had written to Timothy and said, Timothy, go down to CVS and get a little Pepto, and you'll feel better. And Timothy had gotten that letter. Do you know what he just said? What in the world's a CVS? What's Pepto? He didn't have a whole lot of options in his treatment of that, which is funny to me because people take that and they make this leap and go, well, Paul told Timothy to drink it for his stomach. It was a health thing. And doctors today say having a glass of wine every day is good for your heart. That's what they say. And so I always ask them when they, when they tell me that and say, so you only drink one glass of wine a day? And generally they go, well, maybe every once in a while, if I'm out on the golf course, I'll drink one then, or if at dinner, I'll have this. And so I'm like, okay, so let's just be clear. It's not that you're just drinking one glass of wine a day. Well, no. And then secondly, I just got to say this. Come on. Who are you kidding? Who are you trying to justify your behavior to? It's yourself. And so you're telling yourself, this is healthy for me. Look, if you want to have a healthy heart, cut back on the fatty foods eat more vegetables, eat more lean meat, and exercise three to five days a week for 30 minutes, you're going to have a healthy heart. Come on, if people walk up to you, see you sitting in a restaurant, and you got a 16-ounce steak in front of you, a baked potato loaded with butter, sour cream, bacon bits, and chives, and a glass of wine in front of you, the last thing in their mind is, wow, what a picture of health he is. (laughs) Really? No, they're not thinking that. Okay, it, it's not a healthy thing. Apply some logic, some reasoning to these choices and decisions. Number five, recognize that alcohol is a drain. Alcohol is a drain. I can't, ha- I can't again, go through the time of, of the economic drain alcohol puts on our medical system because of accidents and injuries and destruction of property, our social services that are so high because of the counseling and so many needs that come because families are wrecked and there are divorces and, and people are, are in all these addictions and, and in these institutions because of the dangers of alcohol. And how do you put a price tag on the loss of life from a drunk driving accident or injury or or the pain of divorce and the things that go through and experience as a result of alcohol? Do you realize the only positive financial impact alcohol has is in the pocketbooks of those who manufacture and sell it? That's the only positive impact that it has anywhere in the world. Those who manufacture and sell it. So here's a bottom line, just an exercise for you to wrap this up for yourself. Take on the back of your sermon note sheet the pro and the con chart, and you determine for yourself what's the wise thing to do. List the pros, the positives that you can think of in drinking alcohol in moderation. Never being drunk because that's a sin, but drinking in moderation. And then list in the con list the negatives that come in drinking alcohol, in possibly losing your witness, your testimony for Christ, that you, in your example that you might become a stumbling block for others and the other pitfalls and dangers that are associated with alcohol consumption. And I know what people think. People say, well, that's not going to happen to me. 
There are addiction and rehab facilities all across America where the number one thing you're going to hear from people who are in those facilities is, I didn't think it would happen to me. I didn't think it would. Don't fool yourself because you know what? You're the only one that you are fooling by telling yourself that. It can happen to you. And the statistics are in my favor that, yes, it can. I don't know what you think you might gain, but you have so much to lose. Is it worth that risk? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said in verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And in verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. With all the beverage choices available to us today that people in ancient times didn't have, why would we make the choice considering all that we could lose? And realize that's what people in Bible times had available. They had water they could drink or some kind of a fruit juice, maybe an apple or different fruits that would grow. And not a lot were growing in the arid Middle East where, where most of our, our scriptures come from. Uh, they did have grapes that would grow there. And recognize that any kind of fruit juice that you squeeze and that you put into a cup, if left unrefrigerated for any length of time, it's going to begin to ferment and develop an alcoholic content. And they didn't have refrigeration so everything that they squeeze and produce is going to begin down that path just naturally and I don't this isn't the number one argument for me in any of this but just to put down the list as another factor another thing to consider is that the alcohol content of wine and drink in those days was so very different from what we have today as we speed along and we strengthen the fermentation process to get more strong drink uh, there, there's much research and, in, and uh, discussion that goes into the fact that most common beverages, again, because there wasn't mass production of things, they wanted to stretch what they could as long as possible. Most everyday alcoholic drinking beverages in this time, if it had a wine content, was about two to three parts water and one part wine. They diluted it to be able to make it last longer, to give you this flavored water that had the wine taste to it. So basically, the comparison I read this week was that it would take about 22 glasses. 22 glasses of wine to equal the alcohol content in two martinis that we would drink today. You know what that tells me? 22 glasses of wine compared to two martinis. Your bladder would tell you to stop before your brain would. All right? Trying to drink 22 glasses of wine to get that same alcohol content. Wave the white flag. I cry, uncle. I give up. I quit. You know? So understand that, uh, that dynamic as well in ancient times. Another factor in this is to remember that abstinence is exalted in the Bible. John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest man born of women, abstained completely from alcohol. The Nazarites and the Rechabites in Scripture were commanded and then commended for their total abstinence from alcohol as well. So you see, the question boils down to why? Why? Why risk giving up or losing all you could lose for Christ and in life in general just to exercise this freedom that you have in Christ? I told you the question we've been asking that we shouldn't ask is, can you do it? Because can we do it? Sure. Should we do it? That is the bigger question. And that's a conviction that you 
and God will have to work out in your life. But for me and for my family and for the example that I lead and tell you as pastor of your church, the open and shut case in asking what's the wise thing to do in this area is to not touch and to never touch a drop of alcohol. And that's the commitment and that's where I stand on the issue. And this is an odd one to kind of wrap up and bring to an invitation today. It's like, how do you do this whole alcohol thing? You know, all, all the alcoholics come and we're going to confess them. No, I'm not going to do that today, all right? But, but what I did want to do as we come to this point of the sermon is to remind you of what I said at the very beginning. If you don't know Christ, then your greatest need today isn't a biblical understanding of alcohol. It's that you respond to the fact that you need Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. All your sins, not just sins related to this area, but the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all sinners saved only by Christ's grace. You need to recognize that Jesus Christ died in your place. He took the punishment for your sins upon him so that you could be forgiven and stand pure and righteous and forgiven before God. And so today, if you're here and you've never made that decision to place your faith and trust in Christ to receive his forgiveness for your sins, then we want to invite you to do that. Our pastors will be available, and we'd love to talk with you about how you can place your faith and your trust in Christ. But for believers who are here today, I say to you, the invitation is for you to remember and take seriously the call from Scripture to live your life for the sake of of the gospel. That means people should see the difference Jesus has made in your life. They should hear the difference. They should know the difference. And we shouldn't put anything in front of them that's going to be a stumbling block in their perception of who Jesus Christ is and what he does in the lives of people. Because let's face it, if I'm out somewhere and you guys walk in and I'm in a restaurant and I've got a, a bottle of beer or a glass of wine in front of me, 98 to 99% of people are going to look and go, oh, they're just, something is not right about that. That's the perception the unbelieving world has about believers is that alcohol, because they know the dangers, they know the pitfalls, they know all these things, they perceive and would think that believers are going to steer clear of that because that's one of the things that Jesus Christ will lead them to do. But in your life, if there are any things, not just alcohol, anything in your life that's causing you to not live fully surrendered for the sake of the gospel, then today I ask you, would you confess those areas and would you ask Jesus Christ to help you live your life fully surrendered to him so that people can see the difference he has made in your life? Our pastors would love to pray for you and encourage you in that journey and that walk as you seek to surrender your life to Christ. And so I would invite you uh, to come and talk with them. Or The altar is always open, so if you or your family want to come and spend time in prayer, to just ask God to help you surrender and submit your life to him.